What kind of unprecedented food crisis has the COVID-19 pandemic, followed by the Russian war in Ukraine, left people in the most challenged areas of the world? What kind of actions is the Food and Agricultural Organization recommending to lessen the blow of extreme hunger and poverty? Was this food situation deliberately engineered? Will the genetic engineering corporations now market their products the way the pharmaceutical companies promoted vaccines in order to halt a holocaust? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we're taking a look at the sudden threat to food security suddenly propping up everywhere, and whether or not there is an attempt to recreate food systems the way the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdowns is the start of restructuring the business sector via the Great Reset. In our first half hour, an expert with the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations offers up specifics surrounding the role of the pandemic and the Russian war in Ukraine in accelerating the situation and actions recommended to nations to decrease the misery in the coming year. In our second half hour, we're joined by Off-Guardian editor and journalist Kit Knightley, who articulates the numerous other ways by which the food security situation is deliberately being made worse and the individuals, corporations, and systems that could stand to gain from the outcome. On this week's program, the coming food apocalypse and the global attempt at a takeover. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 3rd, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The plan shows the official agenda of the World Health Organization to have 10 years of ongoing pandemics from 2020 to 2030. This is revealed by a WHO virologist, Marion Koopmans. You will also see shocking evidence that the first pandemic was planned and abundantly announced right before it happened. Make sure to watch and share this everywhere. More information and to see all the documents in the plan, go to https colon forward slash forward slash www.stopworldcontrol.com forward slash proof. That comes from the article, Video, The Plan, WHO plans to have 10 years of pandemics, 2020 to 2030. Proof that the pandemic was planned with a purpose. Posted June 1st, originally published at Stop World Control. Grant, 64, 
was called as a witness in the case of Alan Shelton, a 34-year-old man suffering from non-Hodgkin lymphoma, or NHL, who alleges his repeated use of Monsanto's Roundup herbicides caused his disease. Lawyers for Monsanto sought to block Grant from having to appear live at the trial, which is taking place in Jackson County Circuit Court in Kansas City, Missouri. But the judge in the case and an appeals court denied the company's request. Multiple sources involved in the case said settlement talks over the weekend nearly netted a deal, but ultimately fell short and the trial resumed Tuesday. Shelton, who lives in Kansas City, Missouri, was diagnosed with NHL in May 2016, a little more than a year after international cancer scientists affiliated with the World Health Organization classified the active ingredient in Roundup, a chemical called glyphosate, as a probable human carcinogen. That comes from the article, Monsanto's former CEO testifies in Roundup trial points to EPA safety findings by Carrie Gillum, posted June 1st, originally published on The New Lead. But like Meeks and Truss, this Moldovan reality has not prevented President Maya Sandu from suckling on the teats of the IMF's and NATO's ever-burgeoning war chest. It is impossible that Sandu does not know quite well that Transnistria poses no threat to Moldova or Chisinau, yet she dutifully, like the EU-NATO leaders, sounds a false alarm with her siren's call to NATO. However, the people I meet in the park on this glorious day are not so easily conned. With Sandu welcoming Meeks publicly on May 22nd, the Moldovan president seemed willing to take on a similar role as Ukrainian President Zelensky, ignoring facts, negotiation, and the true will and interests of her public in favor, rather, of Moldova's destruction at the hands of her NATO masters. That comes from the article, Moldova Goes Full Zelensky, President Sandu Invites Nation's Destruction, by Brett Redmayne Titley. Posted June 1st. The world faces a much bigger energy crisis than the one of the 1970s. The executive director of the International Energy Agency, or IEA, Fatih Birol, told German daily Der Spiegel in an interview published on Tuesday. Back then, it was just about oil, Birol told the news outlet. Now we have an oil crisis, a gas crisis, and an electricity crisis simultaneously, said the head of the international agency created after the 1970s shock of the Arab oil embargo. The energy crisis started in the autumn of last year, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine made it much worse as the markets feared disruption to energy supply out of Russia, while Western governments are imposing increasingly restrictive sanctions on Moscow over the war in Ukraine. The EU agreed late on Monday to ban most of the imports of Russian oil, leaving pipeline supply exempted from the embargo for now. That comes from the article, IEA 
Current Energy Crisis is Much Bigger Than 1970s Oil Crunch by Charles Kennedy, posted June 1st, originally published on oilprice.com. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations should give us a pretty clear picture of the extent of, of the situation with food availability and and inflation, who's getting hit hardest and how severe will the situation be as as winter approaches in in six months time. Joining me to discuss this topic is uh, a representative of the FAO, uh, Monica Totova. She's one of the experts uh, working in Rome, Italy. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Monica. Pleasure is mine. Hello from home. Now, um, I know that uh, the FAO mentioned on on the webpage that the situation was already a concern uh, before the war in Ukraine because of the COVID pandemic. I mean, how bad had the situation declined in the past two years? Yes, thank you for the question. Indeed, the situation in the agriculture markets and the food security situation in general has deteriorated after the the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, agricultural supply chains held up quite well, right? People, although there there was more demand for food at home, more demand for commodities, agriculture and supply chains continued the river. However, at the same time, you had a lot of measures put in place that were aimed to prevent the spread of pandemics, such as lockdowns, restrictions of movements, while this might not have had an immediate effect on, on countries like Canada, it had a, a significant effect on countries where most people work in informal sectors, right? Where people rely on the employment from the informal sector, they were not getting any compensation as we saw in some other countries. And therefore their livelihoods, their livelihood opportunities and their incomes declined. So there are basically three factors we are talking about now. The first one were already high prices before the the war in Ukraine started in February 2022, which came as a result of some supply and demand issue. We are talking agriculture. So in some part of the world, it's very likely there is going to be drought, there is going to be some other natural event. So we had high prices. We had food security numbers that were deteriorating across the globe stemming also from the the implications of the pandemic. And then came this additional uncertainty to the markets, right? Which was the the bone which involved two major players. Russia and Ukraine combined in 2021 supplied about one third of wheat that is being traded uh, in the world. Of course, they're important producers of other commodities. Russia is an important fertilizer producer. But uh, right now, it seems that uh, a lot of discussion in the world, particularly as it relates to food security, is indeed focused on the wheat. Mm. 
Yeah, well, you make make the point that it's uh, this the uncertainty alone is enough. That's like there's a response on the part of the the market that that will drive up the price. But uh, yeah, well, you say like one third of the wheat comes from uh, Russia and Ukraine, right? It's thirty percent. It was well. It depends, you know, year on year. Depends on the on the production level. But in twenty twenty one, Ukraine supplied about ten percent of the wheat and uh, Russia about thirty percent of the wheat of the exports, right, of the, the amount that was traded. Well, what uh, are the regions right now that, that, that are seeming to be affected at, at this stage? Well, at this stage, you, know, you see high prices, but uh, also, although it seems like the, the conflict has been lasting for a very long time, we are we, we have passed the 100-day mark, or we will be soon passing the 100-day mark. Um, in the markets, what you see now, and in the specific countries, is the impact of the prices that were increasing already before, right? They were already on pretty high levels. Now, in terms of exports from Ukraine, uh, let's talk mostly about wheat. Right, I mean, it applies to also other commodities, uh, but if we focus on wheat, uh, most of the wheat in Ukraine is a winter variety. So it is planted in October, November, and it is harvested June, July, depending on the, on the, the weather conditions and the maturity, right? So the wheat that was harvested in uh, last summer, summer 2021, it was a very good year in Ukraine. They harvested over 30 million tons. So on a, in an average year, Ukraine exports about 18 million tons. However, last year, given that the year was exceptional, they exported already 18 million tons between, say, September, when the, the exports picked up, and uh, February, when they could no longer export via Black Sea, they only exported those 18 million tons. So uh, they were about, about six, seven million tons of wheat in the country that could have been exported, but only a small share of that wheat was exported. There was much more, much more maize available because the maize exports are later and they go on more into, into the spring. And I, so, I mean, what you see right now, uh, exports from Russia continued to some countries, not ever exports going to Iran, Turkey, Lebanon. Uh, I understand Egypt bought some grain from, uh, from Russia. So there are some exports from going from Russia, also, also via Black Sea, although it is more expensive now to ship via Black Sea. Because of, the, because of higher insurance premia, the vessels have to pay, but they are exports going. So what we see right now is that you have this quantity, which wasn't after all that big in, in, for this agricultural season, right? the marketing year, which is finishing in, uh, in uh, June 2022. So for this season, it was the quantity of six, seven million tons. Uh, since most of the, the wheat already sailed from Ukraine. So the question now is more what is going to happen in the, in the, in the near future. 
that would be from uh, uh, when this winter wheat is harvested in the northern hemisphere. So that, as I said, is June, July. And how much of that wheat is going to make it to the markets? Mm. Well, so that was a long response, but I don't think I entertained your question, which countries <laughs> are the most affected. Uh -huh. So I got carried yeah. away there. Well, maybe so the, in, the crises developing, as we see this develop, say in, in six months or so, uh, where, where will the crisis be a, a more grave situation from, from your perspective? So you know, the fact that you already had those high prices before, before the, the peak, right, the additional uncertainty that was added by the point, you already had countries which uh, were in difficult position in a difficult position to buy sufficient amount of food. Those are in particular what we call low-income net food importing countries, right? Often these countries, not always, but often they are already additional challenges present in these countries. So if you take an example, often we talk about Yemen. So in Yemen, which, by the way, was sourcing a significant amount of uh, wheat from, uh, from uh, Russia and Ukraine. So in, in Yemen, we are now seeing 17 million people that are already food insecure. And this is because of the protracted conflict and economic crisis. So the most affected right now are the countries that had already something going on, meaning there was conflict, there was uh, on a natural, some sort of a natural disaster, on uh, economic conditions, but often in those countries, which are sometimes referred to as food crisis countries, uh, you see combination of all of these factors, which is making things much worse. So we are talking about uh, some countries in, in Eastern Africa, Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, and the list is quite long. Okay. Um, you know, there, uh, maybe I'm not that necessarily that bright, but I know that some of the wheat that's, that's produced in, in, in Russia, Ukraine, it goes to animal feed, right? So there's a, a certain amount of shortage for animal feed as well as for humans. I'm just wondering, yeah, how, how is that going to compound the situation for people who are producing uh, food, uh, like livestock, in other parts of the world? Well, yes, some of the wheat uh, goes towards uh, animal feed, but there is also quite a high degree of substitution. It's often the low quality wheat that goes to the, that goes to, to, towards animal feed. Now, we have seen that the that as the, the, the prices of wheat increased, uh, the, the livestock, I'm not a livestock expert, but what we saw on the market is that demand for other commodities that could be used as feed has increased, pushing those other prices up as well. So there was also, I mean, rice is usually not used for, for feed, but there was an increased demand for so-called broken rice, Right, which could be apparently used for, for animal feed. But what you will see, what we will see as the world, is as those prices are making their way through right, the system, maybe right now the, 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 the animal, uh, some prices, at least here from what I see, 
um, prices of animal protein have increased. I don't know how about what's the situation in Canada, but eventually these prices will incorporate the increased prices of, uh, of the feed. Mm. Um, I, I'm curious about, well, the uh, Europe in particular, uh, it's, it's suspected of having a, a crisis in, in food as well. I mean, and largely it seems that uh, the, the, the fertilizer that's also produced in, in, in Russia and, and in Ukraine is not necessarily going to be as plentiful. So they won't have as much fertilizer to use on their plants. And, and so that, that's going to be, they're going to run into some shortage there. I believe there's even certain farmers uh, worried about uh, this being the worst situation since the Second World War. Is that something you can elaborate on? Well, we are certainly very concerned about the fertilizer prices, but also the fertilizer prices started increasing already in 2021, at least in Europe. Right? So in 2021, because the nitrogen fertilizer is, is uh, quite the price of the nitrogen fertilizer is quite related to the price of natural gas. So as the natural gas prices started increasing, also the prices of the, the fertilizer started increasing. In some, uh, some places, uh, the prices increased uh, for farmers three, four times. Now, yes, the farmers, if you remember the, the, the price, uh, the, the crisis in 2007, 2008, then the saying was, well, the best cure for high prices is high prices, because the farmers, when they see the high prices, they will want to produce more. Now, in the current situation, given that the input prices are so high, of course, they need input to be able to produce more. Sure, you can spread area, but we are not in the situation that we can bring much more new area into the production. So they will have to increase the production on the area, on the lands they have available now. Now, without fertilizers, it is difficult. So it is less of a problem in the, in the higher income countries. It's, it's a problem everywhere, but in the higher income countries where the farmers have been putting fertilizer on a regular basis, there are some types of fertilizers where they, if they pass on application for one year, things are unlikely to turn out okay. Right? I mean, the, the yields might suffer, but uh, there is still a, a good strong potential for, for achieving some yields. In many countries, in, uh, particularly in developing countries, when they are already using very low amount of fertilizer and you don't have all these nutrients in the soil, the implications are going to be much worse. And another point on that is that the farmer in, uh, in, in uh, Canada, for example, he probably has access to some financial mechanism that he can take a loan right, to, to buy the fertilizer. This is not an option in many low-income countries. So the, the result will be that the farmers are going to use less fertilizer, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, you, you, maybe you, you can't speak uh, in, in an, as an informed way about Canada, but I'm just curious, I mean, I know that Canada, I mean, we're, we're seeing higher prices in, in spite of all of our, you know, you know we do have uh, the ability to produce our own um, fertilizers and uh, you know, different price options and so on. But, uh, you know, maybe in, in general terms, uh, how, how you see Canada and the United States 
being affected by these things? Are they, they going to be able to bounce back with their, uh, uh, their own uh, uh, resources? Or, or is it, uh, or, or are they part of this whole network that's, uh, that, that pulls them in, if you know what I mean? Well, they are big countries, right? So they have a better chance and they have their own supplies, own production, although some, some inputs are imported. So they are in a better position to pull through right, than some other countries. What concerns, what makes me a little bit nervous is that um, is the unpredictability of weather, which farmers have been living for for ages. It's a part of the business, right? You don't know how the year is going to develop. But uh, the, 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 the some drought in the US, etc. So what, what, uh, what makes me concerned is that if we see another weather-related shock, like for example, right now, the crops, if I understand, in Canada are, are shaping up quite all right. Uh, but if there is a heat wave, for example, coming up and the, the crop is just not there or the yields decrease, that is likely to create a problem for the whole world. Mm. Or the problem will have global implications. Mm. Now, in order to keep the situation from getting much, much worse in, in, in six to nine months time, what general course of action is the FAO uh, planning to, 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 to put in place so, so that this, the, 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 the course of action that's going to prevent the situation from getting uh, to, to say a, a worst case scenario, shall we say? Okay, well, as FAO, we can, we can make recommendations, right? We can advocate, we can advise, but it's, uh, it's not uh, the organization itself uh, that is making the decision. It's up to the member states, and also member states of the United Nations, since we are part of the United Nations family, it is up to them to decide what course of action they are going to adopt. Now, as the, the above all, the rule is to leave the trade open, right? Even if the prices are going to be higher, the trade between the countries, the goods, um, the agricultural products, the fertilizers, the, the goods that are important from the food security point of view, they have to be able to flow. So the countries are really, uh, discouraged from employing policies that would restrict the movement of goods. And uh, because those have really negative implications in the medium term. Uh, for This applies for, for crops, but it also applies for the fertilizers. Then in addition to keeping the, 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 the trade open, uh, countries might be also tempted to introduce some blanket measures, right? Uh, that will help all people in the country. It's usually better to support those that are the most vulnerable, such as people that are spending a high share of their disposable income on food and energies. It's better to direct those directly, right? The targeted measures with vouchers, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of helping countries, they are programs in place and proposal that will help countries or when the countries can ask for support 
in uh, overcoming, for example, the balance of payments problems that prevent them from buying sufficient amounts of uh, food. It is also quite important, and there are many crises in the world, many, many problems with the, where the, the attention of donors might be divided between different crises. So do we support uh, a crisis, an existing crisis that is in, for example, in the Horn of Africa with the, the, the consecutive drought season they have there? Or do the donors support, uh, for example, a, a different region? So it is important to maintain the level of support also for existing crises. And last but not least, um, uh, going back to the crisis and assistance that is provided by aid agencies, uh, the colleagues in the World Food Program that provide food assistance, uh, they also buy goods, uh, agricultural commodities on the markets. So they too have to pay higher prices and they have to pay higher shipping costs. So early back in March, they calculated that to maintain the same level of uh, food assistance and not to decrease the, the, the rations, they would have they would need 71 million thousand dollars, 71 million dollars more every month to be able to do that. Okay. Uh, Monica Totova, I, I want to thank you for joining us and, and sharing these um, this the statistics and these uh, data with our listeners. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you, my pleasure. We've been speaking with uh, Monica Tutova. Uh, she's one of the experts working in Rome, Italy, at the uh, Food and Agricultural Organization. listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The end of food security, we're hearing about it more and more often. An interesting thing about it is that the cause of food insecurity keeps changing. Right now it's Russia's war on, on Ukraine causing shortages and, and hiking up in prices. Yesterday, the COVID-19 pandemic would cause shortages. There was also the bird flu, which resulted in killing off millions of poultry, which were not eaten. Lately, the US president is reportedly paying people not to farm. It seems like the, the powers that be are not only predicting a food crisis, but are actually engineering it by hook or by crook. Kit Knightley is an editor and journalist writing for Off Guardian. Uh, launched in 2015 and, and founded by uh, individuals censored or banned from the Guardian's comment is free section. It was dedicated to open discourse and free expression, often hosting articles on, on both sides of a particular issue. Uh, he's written at length, uh, not only about the flaws in the COVID pandemic narrative, but also about the, the war on food now under assault. Kit Knightley joins me now. Uh, thank you so much for making yourself available to talk to our listeners. Uh, there's no problem at all. Off guard, you your attention back. Technically, then... it got started before I was involved. I was actually invited on after already been going a couple of months. Um, somebody who knew during the um, the first Ukraine crisis in 2014, when there was um, basically we came as close to nuclear war as we had done since the Cuban Missile Crisis after the Russian annexation of Crimea, like 
somehow the Guardian comment section under a lot of their Ukraine articles became an area of um, pitched battles of narrative. Um, it became very difficult to give any kind of counter um, Western opinion. People were being censored and banned and shadow banned all over the comment section. Um, and after that had gone on for a long time, a group of uh, commenters who were only really united by the fact they'd all been at least banned from the Guardian conversation once, maybe several times, said, well, we'll just post our comments on our own website. Um, a few after they've been doing that for a couple of months, one of them got in contact with me because they knew my name from the comment section and, and knew I'd been banned a bit um, and asked me to come on. And unfortunately, since then, for various reasons, the originals have sort of melted away. And now there's just, just, a, just a handful of us. Mm. Um, and, it, and it evolved from just a posting comments website to a posting articles. People email us articles and say, will you put this up? And so we did, and then we started writing our own, and it just became essentially an alternate news website as it is now. Yeah, yeah, certainly putting out interesting stuff. Now, uh, talking about the, the food crisis, you noted in, in one of your recent articles uh, the, the multiple vectors spelling the demise of our food system. Uh, can you remind us of, of some of the, the multiple variables that that suggests that this food insecurity is is planned rather than just say perhaps a, a couple of coincidences. You don't even. I'm not even sure if "planned" is the right word. That is kind of the unfortunate nature of like mainstream news. As it stands, it doesn't even need to be planned. It doesn't need to really exist. But certainly, they talk about a food crisis a lot, and they attribute it to different factors depending on what you know the current thing is. Before COVID, it was Brexit in this country. Brexit was going to cause a food threat crisis. Of course, climate change is constantly going to cause a food crisis. Um, COVID caused a food crisis, and then lockdowns caused a food crisis um, because of the, the hurting of supply chains. Um, and now, of course, it's um, it's the war in Ukraine is causing a food crisis. The food crisis is like an important part of what they want to talk about, certainly. Um, the way it's manifesting right now, I mean, you, you said in your preamble, you said um, bird flu suddenly came along and that's causing the price of eggs and poultry to go up. The war in Ukraine is causing the price of wheat and fertilizer and sunflower oil and a whole bunch of other staple foods to go up, either because we're sanctioning them coming from Russia or because Russia is blockading Ukrainian ports. You know, and they're, they're engaged in a sort of narrative tug of war over that. Russians say it's all the West's fault, and of course the West say it's all Russia's fault, and that's just the way it goes. But the end game is the price of food has gone up, and there is scarcity in this country. I don't know if it's happened in Canada. They've actually been rationing sunflower oil. I don't know if they need to, but they certainly have been. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Canada does have a, a little, you know, I mean, it's it's not the, the multiple, uh, you know, multiple amounts of fertilizer, but we do pr produce it uh, here to somewhat. So it's maybe not as dire as, as other areas, obviously. But I, I'm wondering, like, what when you have, for example, uh, the, the U.S. president, uh, you know, issuing, uh, you know, announcements that uh, there's going to be a limits to the amount of fertilizer cars that, that move forward, that's going to limit the uh, the ability to produce so that that i mean okay even if there is 
these uh, uh, you know, food uh, shortages or, 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 or containing it, this is only going to make it worse, you know? Yeah, yes. It's I mean, that, that's, that's the, the main point, which kind of points to it being a deliberate policy, just, just as with, you look at the oil price, oil price soars because of the war in Ukraine, it was Western sanctions on Russia. And, and, you, and a few people could say, well, it's out of our control. But then there are things that are in Western control and there are things that are in the Arabic Peninsula's control, but Saudi Arabia increased their prices anyway. And Biden refused, refused new drilling licenses and various oil and didn't instruct American oil companies to increase their output. And these make you think, okay, so the price of oil is actually being deliberately increased because it serves a purpose. And the same thing is happening with food. There's this bizarre policy currently enacted in the US about um, economic conservatorship is what they call it, where they basically pay farmers to let some of their land go wild and then they've protected the environment. But it is essentially paying farmers not to farm, which if you're facing a food crisis is a suicidal thing to do. They're doing a similar thing in the UK for a different reason. Um, and there is this uh, internal a policy of the um, big haulage company in America, which is going to limit the amount of fertilizer they move for some reason. So there, it's all very well to say bird flu is an you know, act of God and nobody could have stopped the war, even though obviously they could if they wanted to. But there are then policies on top of that which make it appear to be certainly a deliberate policy of increasing the cost of food and making food more scarce. Why would these uh, would the elites uh, be trying to uh, create this uh, uh, shortage? Well, what, what what's behind the uh, the, the attack on, on food systems of, of billions of humans? This is a, a, a really neat time to ask me that question because I was writing paragraphs about that not an hour ago. Um, it's much like the, the whole pandemic agenda in which every Western politician and other politicians around the world use the phrase build back better. But in order to build back better, they had to knock everything down. And that's what lockdowns did. They wrecked the environment, they wrecked the um, economy. Um, we're going to get the same line. And in some places we already are on food. We're going to be told that the Ukraine war has shown how unstable and insecure our food system is and we need to reform it. We need to build back our food supply better. Um, and if you look at the things they talk about at places like Davos, which just finished earlier this week or last week, um, you'll see it's going to go in a more corporate, more chemical, faker direction with food is, is gonna be the way we go. We're going to get that um, lab grown meat is gonna be pushed. There's articles about that some company is just constructed the biggest lab room facility in the world in America. They just started, it was announced last week. There's um, algae and bacteria being grown in vats in this country and in Finland, I think, um, which produce this yellow froth, which you then form into bacteria pancakes, which you can eat. Um, gene edited food is a big thing that's being pushed at the moment. They've just re, re, um, redefined the law a bit in the UK to allow gene edited food to be unlabeled as opposed to gene modified food, there is a distinction. I'm not sure if you know, but a gene edited food means only like editing or adding genes from its own species and gene modified food would mean cross species genetic material. 
So they're saying that's the difference and we don't need to regulate gene edited food as much. And there's already articles coming out saying gene edited food will solve the food crisis and stuff like that. So it's, it's fairly clearly going in a sort of corporate rather sort of soylent greenish direction with regards to food. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you also wrote another article uh, about the rise of, uh, I guess, gen gen genetic uh, in engineering and, and uh, that one thing uh, that they're going to be revving up is, is to sell this uh, G modification uh, like, like they just promoted the vaccines in, in the last two years. I mean, just like people who didn't get vaccinated were second as were scorned as being selfish and unscientific, you know, oh, watch yeah. out for the organic farmers uh, to come under criticism for threatening the, the food supply of earth. Right. So, so that's, that is exactly it. Will, that is exactly how it will go. It will be like, oh, you don't follow the science. Gene edited food is safe. All these studies done by the companies that make gene edited food say so. Um, yeah, the anybody price... who says, I'd just rather not, will be told they're being selfish and not thinking of the climate or not thinking of Ukraine or something. Yeah, the, the food crisis, I mean, it forms a part of the Hegelian problem reaction solution, which, which yeah. benefits is... people trying to determine what we can eat. Uh... Exactly. Oh, wait, that's, you, you're actually almost directly quoting a, a, an article I'm writing right now, which is oh. very neat, just to give it a little plug. Yeah. Yeah, so with, with all of this and also the, 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 the different uh, uh, lab created, lab, lab formed meats is what like, I, I mean, what we were talking about uh, something that is, uh, it's essentially property, right? It's, it's not like the regular produce. I mean, there's some sort of, uh, you, you can make a, like you know, once you have a, a a certain product, then you you have a patent on it. Well, so exactly. I mean, you can patent lab-grown meat, but you can't patent a chicken. People can buy their own chickens and raise their own chickens, but if you make that irresponsible and selfish, then people are going to have to rely on patented meat, which they cannot produce at home, and which they have no input into like what goes into it or not. There's going to be all is going to be a big focus of money for big corporate producers and the the end of small holdings, the end of local farming, the end of producing your own meat or looking after your own animals. Mm. There's going to increase reliance on the state and on corporate giants, which is kind of the whole point of the game, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So we were basically talking just uh, like with the whole uh, reset. I mean, they 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 they, they essentially uh, shut down every. Uh, there, there were lockdowns all over the place, and and it, it just we're, we're rebuilding the economy. We're also rebuilding now. We're, we're rebuilding the the, the the food system, and uh, that's going to be the, the issues. So the issue is like, what's going to happen to the farmers? Just like we could ask, what happened to the the private business owners or the small business or whatever? And then certain. Uh, I guess it's, it'll be major giants that are going to capitalize on it. Yeah, well, I mean, Bill Gates is already, I mean, it's covered a lot. Bill Gates is the, like, the major landowner in America in terms of farmland. He also owns stocks in a company that uh, makes lab-grown meat. So, you know, these are the people, that's the class of people that know where the wind is blowing and will have been preparing for this. Um, I mean, you know, the, the factoid that did the did the rounds during lockdown is that while while the economy suffered, 
the world's billionaires had a massively profitable 2021. They something like tripled their net worth or something. I don't remember the exact numbers. It doesn't really matter. But the same thing will happen with the food tech industry. It will become solidified, solidified around you know a few major companies. You know, I mean, and and they'll be able to market their their stranglehold on it as being socially responsible, which will be terrific. McDonald's will buy their own meat growing lab and they'll put it on all their all their posters. McDonald's meat is all grown in a lab. We don't hurt the environment sort of thing. But you're still, it's going to make it impossible to get meat that isn't grown by McDonald's or isn't grown by Burger King or some other huge chain or something like that. Well, you, you you mentioned the uh, Bill Gates. I mean, they he he bought up a whole lot of farmland. Uh, it, it's tempting to see that how he is caught up with this, uh, but because uh, nothing about his background indicates an interest in farming. Yet, you know, according to the writer, uh, the Guardian writer Nick Estes, uh, he owns more farmland than the entire Native American nation. But but what do you know about? how Gates intends to use that farmland and how could that fit in with this new global food situation? I mean, as far as knowing, I'm afraid I actually don't know how he intends to use it. I don't, I don't believe there's been any definite like releases said about what he intends to do with all the farmland he owns. Um, I could take some educated guesses. It will be mainly a focus on like, responsible i'm doing finger quotes responsible farming it will be about limiting carbon resources it will be about like um growing genetically modified soy that can be used for protein instead of meat and stuff like that and it will be considered like an experiment in environmentally carbon neutral farming or something that will be how it's put this would be this would be my interpretation and it will be told that it's successful and everybody else should be doing the same thing Yeah. It's also going to make him a, a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I imagine, I guess, like I said, I, I don't have a clue either, but I mean, maybe if he, uh, you know, gets certain things like corn and uh, uh, wheat and, and certain like really basic uh, uh, crops and, and then, you know, he could somehow flood the market with this stuff. And yeah. Yeah. Or he could like use it to, He'll grow only genetically modified or genetically edited wheat and save us from the wheat shortage we're about to get thanks to Ukraine. And everybody will say it's like Bill Gates has shown us how gene edited food will save us and stuff like that. You know, it's, there's a whole way they can construct narratives based on how they use that land. Do you see uh, that Russia, for example, because, you know, apparently they had had some limits on the amount of uh, their own food that could be gene modified. Um, but uh, I mean, is, are, are they in some sense part of the game as well or? Uh... Well, you know, Putin's government has always had a very staunch, absolutely no genetically modified food policy going back years now, I believe to at least 2016, but I'm not sure of the exact date. Um, but as I said, there is a distinction between genetically modified and genetically edited. Yeah. Um, and Russia has no policy at all on genetically edited food. If anything, they've just signed a, a big research deal um, either late last year or early this year, putting billions in investing in their own gene edited food in the name of increasing Russia's food security.
Now, um, another aspect of this is uh, the, the issue of uh, the, the digitalization of RDs coming through the, the whole COVID situation. And uh, I, I think that even if you avoid, if you manage to avoid the vaccine, uh, if you wish to eat, you, you need to get a digital ID, right? I mean, uh, could, could you explain like how, how they would do this? I mean, given, given what you know about the Great Reset and, and about all the, the sustainability measures that, you know, going back essentially to, this, to the Rio summit of 92. Um, well, something not actually connected to food, but um, is certainly interesting. Um, the um, CEO of um, Alibaba um, highlighted at Davos a talk on the future of uh, responsible consuming. Yeah. How they are um, the um, Alibaba are developing apps for travel. They they own a, a Google Maps type travel thing, and they have an app which will, when you put in where you want to go, it will tell you both both the most environmentally friendly way to get there and the most environmentally form of travel to use on that route. And if you take their recommendations for the environmentally responsible things to do, they will give you a little credit boost, like tokens or something to spend in Alibaba's e-commerce platform. You can see that model extending to food very easily. Yeah. You know, you can have an app on your phone that monitors the, the carbon footprint of the kind of lettuce you buy or whatever. And if you stay under a certain limit for a month or a certain limit for a week or something, you get some sort of special bonus from whatever grocery chain you go to that says, well done, here's your 10 pound voucher because you kept your carbon footprint low when you bought potatoes this week or something like that. Mm. You can say, I think it will be um, something along those lines. It will be a corporate influence rather than a state rule about digital IDs, but it will be as corporate and state are completely intertwined. It will be apps that appear to be nothing but friendly, but are really kind of limiting that encourage people to make the right choices or the responsible choices or something like that through a sort of poultry reward scheme that people don't realize ends up controlling. Yeah, uh, is, there any form, is there any form of resistance uh, erupting uh, anywhere in the world uh, uh, against this uh, general tendency to, uh, uh, you know, modify the, uh, the food supply? I mean, is it happening at the state level or even within individual communities? Um. I don't know of any specifics. I do know, generally speaking, lock, one of the unintended consequences of lockdown is that people have started growing their own food more. Just as they started, just as there's been a huge spike in homeschooling kids, kids who haven't gone back to school now lockdown is over. Um, there have been farming cooperatives. I know more farming cooperatives have opened up in the States in the last couple of years. And that's, you know, that's something people can still do for now. They might crack down on it. Um, and there's ways of like doing a cooperative that isn't technically a business so it doesn't have to you know play by the FDA rules in some respect um, stuff like that is happening like on a small isolated level but I think if in order for it to be successful it would need to stay small and isolated 
I think we're at the stage where real like revolution, as it were, is going to be in terms of communities, individuals and families. And any effort to make it like a movement would make it easier to stop. You see what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, it it, it kind of reminds me because, you know, there were all these uh, test drills that uh, they, they went through before the, uh, the, the COVID was launched. I don't know, it could have been a coincidence, but there, there's a tendency um, you know, both from uh, Event 201, which uh, came just yeah. before COVID went out, and back in uh, 2001, there was also the uh, Dark Winter, which was uh, about the release of uh, anthrax, again, just before yeah. it uh, was released. So I I'm wondering if, if there's any, uh, or if you're aware of any uh, food <laughs> drills uh, that, that would, you know, that they could put in effect before this, uh, you know, uh, food crisis was was planned in in, in the in, in by uh you know, by the the major uh, contributors um i'm actually not but um it's interesting as as you were talking about earlier in the intro you said the food crisis has been blamed on uh, other things in the past like brexit and I believe in Canada, they tried to blame it on the, um, the freedom convoy disrupting the supply chains as well. Mm. Um, but at the very fact they're able to say for various reasons, even before COVID, oh, there's a food crisis coming, means they will have been like mm. monitoring how people respond and making plans about how to counteract people's responses and that kind of thing. So I'm not, I'm not sure if there have been any drills. I wouldn't be surprised if there were or if there are happening right now. Mm but I am pretty sure a lot of research has been done on how people will respond and what the best way to control that response will be. Well, to, to those of our listeners who, who would prefer not to rely on, on what the powerful people tell them to eat, uh, what would you suggest people do to, to make the situation bearable, at, at least in the short term? Well, in the, in the short term, I suppose, the solutions are the same as they have been since it became apparent that corporate giants were not making nutritious food. Um, you can grow your own food if you have the space. That's a good thing to do. I mean, it's something that most people probably should learn to do because we don't know how bad things could get. Um, if you don't have the space, you can try and shop locally from local producers or local farms or try and shop organic or there are Places online, I believe, which list products that don't have like genetically modified or genetically edited ingredients in them. Um, even, I mean, some big chains might take up um, the, um, the co-op chain in the UK has said they won't stock gene edited food. Um, so there are options, at least in the short term, to keep on eating decent food, certainly. Mm. And uh, yeah, I guess before you go, I mean, you're saying you're, you're writing a, a, an update, which should be out probably about the time this, well, uh, this goes not out. So much, not so much an update as like um, up until now, the articles we've run about food have been about why, have been about what's actually happening. And the article I was writing today is more a roundup, as we talked about today already, oh. a roundup of why it will be happening and what their proposed solutions are going to be. 
Okay. Well, uh, Kit Knightley, uh, very insightful. I really enjoyed uh, having you on my program. Uh, thank you for, for providing this analysis and, and we're looking forward to having you on again. Uh, take care. Yeah, no problem at all. I'll be, I'll be glad to be back. Okay, and we, we've been speaking to Kit Knightley, editor and writer for Off the Garden. The subject of an engineered global catastrophe is a trend that we should reflect on carefully. Given some of the details I just explored with Kit Knightley, I happened to come across another individual who has dedicated much of his recent time and energy to examining the question. Controlling food is at the heart of controlling human lives. He has studied the indications and is a worthwhile listen for people around the globe. His name is Christian Westbrook, but he goes by the name Ice Age Farmer, and the website is where he logs all his videos and materials. The content consists predominantly of videos relating to the threats to the food system and also to the Great Reset, the sustainability mechanisms in play, and so on. And they go back about four years, long before covid he does a lot of talk about how the food system is switching from meat to the impossible bleeding burger, uh, a GMO lab-grown substance backed by Bill Gates. A recent article uh, talks about how Iran became the first country to roll out a food rationing scheme based on new biometric IDs. People who objected to a vaccine ID might be much more acceptable to this technology if they're hungry enough. And in yet another report, two months ago, he reported that CDC director Robert Redfield stated that the bird flu was, was transmissible from birds to humans and that this new disease would make COVID-19 look like a warm-up in comparison. So we aren't done with the flu craze quite yet. I'm going to see if I can interview the IGH farmer on a future episode. This is an issue that really matters to me. On our next program, serious allegations by a legal team were brought to the attention of UK police authorities alleging corporate manslaughter, gross negligence causing injury and death, and serious misconduct in public office concerning the UK government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdowns. We will explore that case in detail on next week's show. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.